Brian. You guys can have a seat. I was just trying to measure myself, see how tall I was next to Caleb. I'm close, close, but not there. One day, maybe. We're, uh, it's good to see you this morning. We're in Acts chapter 2, and uh, in a famous text. If you're a guest with us, we're traveling through, studying through this book, this amazing book in, uh, in Acts in the New Testament, and we are in verses 1 to 4 in chapter 2, and it is a, a famous passage, one that you probably are f- very familiar with and very uh, understanding of. You, you, you've heard it before. It's widely known, it's celebrated. Uh, some look to it and say, man, I wish that we could do this. This could be the, the, uh, the this extraordinary moment would be our every day. Um, and I think it's important for us to understand as we get into these verses here, that this moment, often the external extraordinary scene that we see here in these verses often overshadow another supernatural extraordinary reality, which I think is the primary point. And the primary point is that God has descended not simply to dwell among his people, but to dwell within his people. That is a stark reality from every world religion. That is a stark reality from what many of us understand within Christianity. We are looking for external experiences when we have the internal reality of God, the living God of the universe, dwelling within us. That's what this text is going to show us. And oh, by the way, then there are some external amazing things that happen. So I want us to see that this morning and understand that the more we meditate on this day, Luke tells us in, in chapter 2. Let me just read the verses and then, and then we'll, we'll study this. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there is an amazing external reality here that is certainly something that we should look at and study, and we will. We'll study it this week. We'll study it next week. We'll see it throughout, really, the the book of Acts. But there's also this internal reality that we need to see and to hear and to understand. And, And in this moment, again, God is descending to dwell not simply among his people, but in his people. And and as we study this day, the day of Pentecost, and as we see the sights and sound, what we're going to... to to understand is that there are some some amazing similarities to another book we've studied, another scene that we've looked at in Exodus chapter 19 when God descends on the mountain to speak to his people Israel and to give them the law. There are some amazing similarities, and I think that's strategic on God's part. It's purposeful by God to communicate something profound. And so it's it's very similar to that day, but it's also, it's the, there is one glaring dissimilarity from that day, and that is where God comes to dwell. He comes to dwell within his people. So we need to study first the day, the day of Pentecost. Then we need to meditate and understand these sounds and these, the sight that we see here in, the, in this text, and then we need to see the result. And that's where we'll spend mo- the bulk of our time and camp out and see some of the implications for our everyday Reality. So verse 1, Luke tells us, when the day of Pentecost arrived or was being fulfilled, they were all together in one place. We have to ask the question. We ought to ask the question, what's the day of Pentecost? 
why this day? Why this day in all of human history does God choose to pour out his spirit? Why not a day before? Why not a day after? Why not some other point in time? Why this day? Why the day of Pentecost, which was a a feast and and a significant moment in the life of Israel? Why this day does God choose to pour out his spirit? Why not some other time of year? And as we'll see, this is a very strategic, purposeful reason. God is communicating something to his people, to us, in this moment here. He is descending to dwell within his people, not simply among them. And if we understand Pentecost, we begin to understand this, this day, we'll see this more clearly. So, so Israel had, had a multiple feast that they celebrated, that they remembered, but there were three primary feasts. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and then there was the Feast of Booths. You can see them here in the fine print. They are also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, sometimes the Feast of First Fruits. That one gets a little muddy, but it's, it's sometimes referred to in terms of Pentecost. And then Feast of Ingathering or Feast of Tabernacles when you come to the, to the Feast of Booths. So these were the primary pilgrimage feasts. That explains why there's so many people in Jerusalem at this moment. A pilgrimage feast means in the Old Testament these feasts were in, in Uh, inaugurated, and all of the people were told, especially all of the men, you were to go to Jerusalem and you're to make an offering, to wave a grain offering or to to offer a lamb. One of these things is to happen, but you were all to gather. From wherever you're at, you're to make it back, pilgrimage back to, to, uh, to Jerusalem for this moment. These feasts can be understood really three different ways. The first is agriculturally. If you, if you understand, they could be understood agriculturally, and then they could be understood historically, and then spiritually, as we look through the lens of Jesus, we begin to understand them even further. But agriculturally, these feasts followed the pattern of the year, of the harvest. And so when we look at Passover, it typically occurred in April, and it celebrated the earliest inklings of the harvest of wheat and barley. So they would have planted that months beforehand, and they're just starting to come up at the Feast of Passover. And then you have 50 days later, which is what Pentecost means, 50, 50 days later, Pentecost happens, and that typically happens sometime in June, and it celebrated God's full provision of the harvest of wheat and barley, and the first inklings of the fruit harvest, of the figs and the, and the grapes and the olives. And, and so in these, this moment in the history of Israel, this is a middle feast in the season, in, in the agricultural year. And then you have at the end of the year, the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And what that was, was looking back. It typically happened in October. It looked back across the year and said, man, God, you have been so good and gracious to us. Look at all that you've given us. Look at the, the you gave us rain. We wouldn't have a harvest if you had not given us rain. Thank God for rain this week, Right. We wouldn't even have a harvest if you hadn't given us the sun, the light. We wouldn't have food if you didn't do this for us. We wouldn't have anything. And so you have these three feasts, Passover in in the earliest phases of the harvest, Pentecost in 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 the middle, and I'm being mental right now. And then in the end, you had the Feast of Booze, looking back and celebrating. But you could also study these feasts historically when each of these feasts represent a historic milestone or marker in the, the life of, of Israel as a nation. We know that in Exodus chapter 12, Passover was instituted, and in 
Exodus 12, what we see is that God calls his people to offer a lamb, and he also, to, to shed the blood of the lamb and to put it over the doorpost to, to, as a covering so that the angel of the Lord would pass over the people. But there's also another element to that. Early in the harvest season, they're gathering their bread, but God says, put away the leaven because you're going to be leaving too quickly to wait on the leaven to rise. So, so put it far away from you and have and eat unleavened bread in this moment. And then you have Pentecost 50 days later. And what happens? 50 days later, in, in intertestamental times, in first, six, second century, many of the rabbis and the scholars, they said, look, if we look back and we look at the timeline, 50 days later, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And what happens on Mount Sinai? God's presence descends and he issues the law, how you are to live before me. Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20, and then the Feast of Booze. When we look back and, and we study that, historically, it was remembering what they did at the Feast of Booze. The reason it's called Feast of Booze is the Feast of Tabernacles. They would go outside the city for one night, one week of the year, and they would build tents, and they would dwell in tents, and they're remembering their 40 years of wandering in tents and God's provision of manna and quail and his daily provision of water and his daily provision of sustenance, his daily provision. We wouldn't be a people if you'd not rescued us out of Egypt. We wouldn't be a people if you'd not come to us on Sinai. We wouldn't be a people if you'd not provided a way to live before you. We, wouldn't, we would have nothing apart from you. You are our life. You are our sustenance and our provider. And so this is historically what they were celebrating. But there's another way to understand these feasts when we look through the lens of the New Testament and through the lens of Jesus and the lens of the gospel. We know that with, with the New Testament, especially like the gospel of John, what's interesting, well, this, this gets a little muddy, but the way that John presents the feast, they celebrated multiple feasts, multiple Passovers, for example, through the gospel of John, but he only highlights one at the end of Jesus' life. What John does, though, in the early chapters, in, in John chapter 6, and John chapter 7, and John chapter 8, is he highlights the Feast of Booths first, the Feast of Tabernacles. And everything that Jesus says in John 6, 7, and 8 is set against the backdrop of the Feast of Booths. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life. What does he say in John chapter 7? I am the living water. John chapter 8, I am the light of of the world. What is Jesus doing on the, on the backdrop, to the, set against the backdrop of the Feast of Booze when these people were celebrating God's provision of grain? I'm the bread of life. You need me. Consume me more than you consume anything else. Against the backdrop of, of the light, one of the things they did in the Feast of Booze, they would light up the whole city of Jerusalem with huge candles, and the whole city would be lit up, and they'd celebrate that God is the provider of light. Sun, moon, all the time, he's the provider of light. And what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world, not just the light of the night and not just the light of the day, the light of the world. I am the light that you desperately need in your dark hearts. And then against the backdrop of the last day of the Feast of Booze, when the last moment of the, of the last day, the priest would go down to the pool and scoop up water, and they would march it back, and it was this big moment because, again, it's a harvest celebration. We wouldn't have a harvest if he had not provided water, if he had not provided rain. And in that moment, Jesus stands up and with a loud voice says, I am the living 
water. So what does John do? He's highlighting that Jesus is the bread, the life, and the light that we desperately need against the backdrop of the Feast of Booze. And then he gets to the end of the Gospel of John, and he highlights one particular Passover that Jesus celebrated the night before he was crucified. So he's not only the, the light, he's not only the bread, he's not only the life, he's also the lamb. He's also God's lamb put forward for us. His blood is shed for us. On that night, Jesus breaks the unleavened bread. He breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. He, like the unleavened bread that puts sin far away, he puts sin far away from you and I. He is the unleavened bread. And then he pours out the wine and says, this is my blood shed for you. He is the lamb, the blood of the lamb, our substitutionary lamb that that covers over us, that, that covers us, that allows us to walk in freedom. What happens 50 days later? Now the disciples, Jesus is gone. How do we live before you, God? How do we live, Jesus, how do we fulfill the mission that you've given us? How do we do anything that you've called us to do? How, where, what do we do? Oh, no. Fifty days later, God's full presence descends, not simply among his people, but to dwell within them, in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, to guide, to, to empower, to enable them to fulfill all that Jesus has called them to do. So this day... Pentecost is extraordinarily significant and, and, and extraordinarily strategic. Joe told me to say strategery, and it keeps coming to my head every single time. Every single time I say the word strategic. There it is, Joe. I worked it in for you. So this day is important. It's, it's extraordinarily important. It's extraordinarily providential in this moment. God has come down, and he's come down to dwell within. Now, we see this, understand this even further when we look at the sight and the sound of this day. This is, this is also extraordinary. We, when we look at the text, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. Now, again, it's the day of Pentecost, which many, many associated with this moment in time in history where God descended on Sinai. Well, how did God appear on Mount Sinai to his people? In, in, in Exodus chapter 19, he appeared at the top of the mountain in fire and in wind. This is, again, providential, what God is trying to communicate to his people. He's doing something remarkably different in salvation history. When we say salvation history, we're talking about the redemptive plan of God from Genesis to Revelation, God's plan of redemption that he's working along all along to rescue the hearts of men. This is a watershed moment in salvation history. This is a moment where God is taking things forward to ultimately the end goal that it was from the beginning that God would dwell with man and man with God. And now he is beginning to fulfill that and give us a foretaste of what's to come. The full dwelling of God with man and man with God. So let's remember how he appeared. In Exodus 19, 8-9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. That's visible. 
that the people may hear when I speak with you, speaking to Moses. And what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the cloud? What's the purpose of the, of the audible voice of God? What's the purpose of the sign of this miraculous moment in Sinai? That, you, that they may also believe you forever. That they may believe. That they may believe that he is the one true God, the God of the universe. That he, he is he is with his people. He's faithful to keep his promises to his people. That he loves them, that he's with them, that he's come to dwell among them. Fast forward, Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud visible. On the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, audible, so that all the people in camp trembled. He has their attention. They are paying attention. The mountain trembled and the people trembled. There is, there is an earthquake and there is fire and there is wind. Everyone is focused on this moment. Exodus 19, 18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, visible, because the Lord had descended on it in fire, visible. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. What's interesting is in Hebrew, voice and trumpet and wind are the same Hebrew word. And so what is happening here is the sound of a trumpet, the sound of rushing wind, the sound of God's voice grows louder and louder in this moment. You could say, and fills the space fills where they're at. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord, this is key, came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Now, to be clear, when we talk about God appearing and, and he appears in fire and he appears or, or he's heard in thunder and lightning, we need to be abundantly clear. The text does not just say he there was thunder and it was lightning. It says that he spoke, that, that he did all of this so that they would hear him speaking. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 12 says that they heard the sound of words. There was only a voice. They heard God's audible voice in this moment. They heard him speaking in this moment. They heard God and they saw God. In this moment, in fire and in wind, there's no mistaking. Everyone here in this moment at Mount Sinai understood what God was saying. Do you see how similar this is to Acts? It's, it's nearly identical in the experience of what's going on here. And, and again, this is not the only time and only place in, out in the Old Testament that God shows up in this way. We could go back and look at multiple scenes in 1 Kings 19.11, he appears to Elijah on the mountain. He first comes to him in a great and strong wind. It says it was so strong it tore the mountain open. It tore the mountain open. Then the earth trembled after that and then the fire. But he wasn't in the wind and he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire. It doesn't mean God wasn't present when it says he wasn't in. He wasn't communicating. And what does it say? And then a still small voice. He communicated to Elijah. Job 38.1, God spoke to Job in a great whirlwind. We were teaching the, the pre, 
K class a couple weeks ago, and we made little whirlwinds with glitter and water, and we're shaking them up, and we made them act like whirlwinds. I'm not going to make you act like whirlwinds. Tornadoes, tumults, they, they, there's this great wind that was violent and audible and visible, and he spoke through Job, to Job through that. Ezekiel 1.4, God appeared to Ezekiel in a great wind and a great fire. If you look back to the Old Testament, particularly at fire, he shows up with Abraham in a smoking fire pot and flaming torch, Genesis 15.17. Later, he appears to Moses in the wilderness in a burning bush, a bush that's not consumed. The fire descends, the bush is not consumed. And then on Mount Sinai, we've already looked at it. Hebrews also references it. And then as a pillar of fire and night by night to lead his people, Exodus 13.21. This is not uncommon in the Old Testament, but it's also mentioned in the New Testament. In Luke 3.16, John, the, the baptizer, says, I baptize with water, but he promised that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and in Greek, Holy Spirit can mean wind. It's pneuma. It, it, it also means wind. And how does Jesus even describe the Holy Spirit to Nicodemus in John 3 when he says you must be born again, born of the Spirit, born by the Spirit who blows where he wills? He references and refers to him as this holy wind. And here what John is saying when he says that Jesus will come is he will come in wind and fire. He will baptize by wind and fire. This is a supernatural moment here in Acts, and it's spectacular what's going on here, though. God is communicating something to his people. He's communicating something to us. What's happening here on this historic day, in this strategic moment, and through the sight and through the sound and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the literal presence of God has come down. That is amazing. That is spectacular. We could end there, but that's not where God ends. That's what's similar to Mount Sinai. It's what's dissimilar that's most spectacular and what's most good news for you and I in the everyday realities of our lives. What's similar is that God comes down. He's visible. He's, he's, he's tangible. His presence is there on Mount Sinai. He's heard. His voice goes forth. People understand what he's communicating in this moment. But it says in Exodus 19, 18, that he came down to the top of the mountain. He did not come all the way down. There was a barrier. In fact, as you study Exodus chapter 19, it, it describes Moses as standing as a mediator between the two, but his arms are, are standing apart, and he pleads with God not to come any further. In fact, the people plead, God, do not come any further. Moses, you speak to us. God, don't speak to us. We can't handle you. We can't get close to you. We can't even hear you without being terrified of you. Moses, you stand in the gap. And so Moses stands in the gap between the two with his arms separated, keeping the two apart. That's where things change in the New Testament because now we have a mediator in Jesus and he doesn't, call, he doesn't come to keep us separated. He comes with his arms wide open. He comes uniting the two that have been divided. And what does he promise in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16? That he will, he will send the Holy Spirit and what are we seeing in this moment? The fulfillment of Jesus' promises. But what happens in this text that is dissimilar from Sinai? And that's so important for us to ask. It's so important for us to see. 
In the text, it says, and this is our third point, the results, this is where we're going to camp out. God comes, but he comes down, and he comes all the way in. In verse 3, it says that the tongues of fire rested on the people. That's amazing. That's spectacular. But that's not where it stops, the very next verse. And they were all filled, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What are we seeing here? The fire comes down. God comes down. He comes down the mountain. He comes down and moves in. He comes down and comes all the way in. And how does he come? He comes in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the supernatural and extraordinary result of this text. Dwelling at the center of of his people, of, of you and I, has been the goal all along. It was the experience of Eden. It was the promise of Genesis chapter 3. It will be the end according to Revelation. And here is the means by which God will achieve that. It is through the personal work of Jesus, in the personal work of the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, Son, and Spirit coming to dwell within his people. This is an extraordinary supernatural moment in this time in salvation history. Man dwelling with God, God with man, our lives being filled up with the full presence of the living God of the universe. And what's amazing here is that this is the experience and the promise to and the experience for every believer. Every believer. Not just a moment in time back then, but the promise and experience for you and I right here, right now. here's, Here's the transition moment. Up to this point, everything in the Bible, everything in the Bible up to this point, this is why it's such a watershed moment, everything in the Bible has been external. Everything has been about following God externally, following a pillar of fire. Everything has been about following God externally. He gave laws, laws that were external to them. Everything has been about relating to God externally through this external sight, external experience, audible Everything is external in the, in the storyline of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. But even when you get to the New Testament, everything is external. The disciples only had Jesus, God in the flesh, externally to them. And they followed him externally. They followed behind him, literally in his footsteps. They would walk with him wherever he walked. They would ask him questions. They would hear his voice. They would see him act. They would see his miraculous activity. They would follow from behind but they were always following externally. But Jesus promised something more. He promised something extraordinarily more. In John 14 and 16, he promised to give, to send the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, it's better to the disciples. It's better for you that I would leave you and go to the Father's side and send the Spirit. What could be better than Jesus' physical presence right here face to face with me? Jesus' literal presence within me. The presence of the living God of the universe dwelling, residing within me. The Holy Spirit dwelling, residing within me. The presence of God in us. This is what Jesus is promising in John 14 and 16. And he says it very clearly. In 14, 16 to 18, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And here's the key phrase. And will be in you. And then he says this amazing thing. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How will you come to us, Jesus? In the immediate context of this verse, it's first in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And what is the primary job of the Holy Spirit? Primary job of the Holy Spirit. Spotlight Jesus and remind us you are a son and a daughter. You have been adopted. You're not orphans. You're not distant from God, far from him. Ephesians chapter 2. You've been brought in to the family of God. You are now one, united with God in Jesus, in the Spirit. This is extraordinary. On Sinai, God descended, but only so far. He descended to the top of the mountain and he gave the law. Now, what is he doing? In Jesus, he has come in the flesh. In the Spirit, He has come all the way down the mountain into our hearts. And He does more than just give the law. He writes the law on our hearts. This is the fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies. First, Ezekiel chapter 36, a profound text influential in my own life in salvation. This is amazing what He promises here. This is the direct fulfillment. I will sprinkle clean water, speaking to Israel, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. He says previously, I will not do this because of anything that you have done. I will not do this because you are so great among all the nations. I will not do this because you've mustered up some kind of power or strength. I'm doing this by my grace. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then what is the very next sentence? And I will put my spirit, capital S, spirit, within you. My spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, apart from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, we have no desire for the laws and commandments of God. We wouldn't even want God. We wouldn't even want His laws or commandments in our lives apart from the inward renovation of the heart of the Holy Spirit, of Him sending the Spirit into our lives, bending us, changing us, transforming us from being about ourselves to being about His laws and commands. Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 2. This is only possible by the work of the Spirit. And this is what God promised to do. And then there's Jeremiah 33, 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my house of Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's the transformation of heart, moving us from being autonomous, independent, having authority issues in our lives against God, against any earthly authority, to being people who are submissive to God, people who desire his commandments. It's not, we don't like, no one likes rules or commandments. We don't like it earthly. We don't like it spiritually. We don't like it with God. The only way that changes is if God invades. If God comes from the outside, inside, and changes something. 
and changes our hearts. And look at what it says. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Know the Lord. You should know the Lord. That's, that's not going to happen anymore. Instead, they shall know me. The most intimate of knowledge they could possibly have, they shall know me. We will be one. That's union that's being described here. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. These two prophecies promise a new day, a new way of living before God, a new covenant, and it's no longer it's it's a promise of something that's no longer external but internal. It's not an external reality, but an internal reality. And the only way for God to descend and to move in and to renovate our hearts, and the only way for Him to do Jeremiah 31, 33, to forgive our iniquities, and remember our sin no more. The only way that's possible is through Jesus. It's not possible for him to dwell within us, sinful man. How is it possible for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God? It's not possible except for by God outwardly moving inwardly to our sinful hearts in Jesus, forgiving our sins and remembering them no more cleansing us. That's what's being described there. And it only happens in and through Jesus. Jesus secured this gift for us. Jesus promised this gift for us. And Jesus sent this gift for us. And this is the fulfillment of Jesus's work. This is the goal, the aim. Man dwelling with God, God dwelling with man. It's how the whole book ends. It's our hope. It's our aim. It's the trajectory of our lives. It's the desperate need of every man, woman, and child. Not independence from God. Not following God externally, religiously. It's internally. It's the transformation, renovation of our hearts, rescue, forgiveness of sins. And this is extraordinary because in this moment, notice how many times it says in just verses 1 to 4, all. This is the 120 this isn't just the apostles, the elite, the super spiritual, the Christian that, that knows everything about the Bible. This is low, lowest among them, least among them, and greatest among them. Jeremiah 31. This is man and woman. This is greatest and least. This is everyone in between. This is a gift for every believer, apostle and disciple. It says it in the text that they were all together in one place. The fire descended and rested on them, on each one of them, on all of them. Not just the apostle, not just the disciples, all of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise for you and I. This is what Jesus secured for us. This is what he promised to send to do in our hearts and our lives. This is what God offers to you and I intimate union. What are the implications for this for our lives? First, two, two big implications. First, I hope you see it. 
This stands in stark contrast to every world religion. Christianity is only one that says that you can't climb up to God, but God has come down to you. Christianity is the only religion that says that that the power is not within you, the power is outside of you. That you desperately need something to come into you. You can't muster it up enough. Every other world religion says, even our little morality bubble that we live in, they all say, climb up to God. Muster up some strength. Just live a good life. Just be better than that guy or that girl. That's how you get there. That's what every world religion says. It's by achieving. It's by doing. It's by earning. It's by something within you. Your intellect, your morality, your strength, something even as superficial and external as by how much you have. Worthless. Those are all worthless. The the world religions say it's by the strongest, it's by the greatest, it's by being the most pure, it's by something you do. But here, all of that is dashed. All of that is shattered. It's not by something within us. It's not by our own abilities. We can't climb up to God. He has come down. The power is not inside of us. It's outside of us. The answer is not a power we muster up to get to God. It's a power that comes from outside in. This is the answer. This is the hope. It's despairing of self. It's despairing of our own power. It's despairing of our own ability. It's despairing of our own intellect. It's despairing of our own strength. It's despairing of our own possessions. It's despairing of anything we could ever present before God. This is why you should accept me. The only hope, the only answer, the only rescue is something you do. If you don't act God, I have no hope. None whatsoever. That's my hope and that's my peace and that's what we're called to do. Transfer our trust from self and all the things we could boast in to the only one that can rescue us, Jesus. And when we do that, we get the promise of the Bible The promise of God, the promise of Jesus, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are filled up, not emptied. Do you see, this is another distinction from every world religion. Every world religion says, climb, muster up, do it. You can do it. Get there, something within you. And what's the answer? What's the result, rather? The answer and the result is emptiness. Ask, ask the billionaires of the world. And everyone will say, there's articles after article, newspaper article after newspaper article. Tom Brady said it himself after so many Super Bowls. There's got to be more. Every person has ever had gotten done, and then they look back, they say, there's got to be more. It's emptiness. It's not fullness. But what's the answer here? Humble yourself. Hope in Jesus Trust in Him and you will be filled up with what? With real substance, real life, real meaning, real identity, real hope. This is the promise of the gospel. There's a second implication, and this implication is for you and I right here, right now, in the everyday reality, in the parenting moments, in the marriage moments, in the professional moments. This is the promise for us, you and I, And we've only skimmed the surface of this. You and I 
have the living God of the universe residing within us. That is the power by which moms, when you're weak and you feel like you can't go on any longer and you want to just tap out at 10 a.m. in the morning, that's the power. This is the power by which you are filled up and strengthened and enabled to carry on, to love as Jesus loved you. This is the secret, whether you're a student or an athlete or or a business professional. This This is the secret. This is the power. This is the presence of the living God of the universe that gives us the patience to love the unlovely. This is the the secret, the power, the the ability, the empowerment that we desperately need to show grace when we don't want to. This is the right here, right now reality of the living God of the universe who dwells within us. This is extraordinary. This is the extraordinary in this text. There is an external extraordinary, certainly to be studied, certainly to be looked at, certainly to be seen, but it's an external byproduct, symptom of an internal reality. And in fact, this internal reality ought to be our ordinary. It's the presence of the living God acting in believers. Listen, we have only skimmed the surface of what that means. At 4th of July... We celebrated Fourth of July with some friends, and the, we, I went to get some, some, some fireworks for the girls, first time they've ever done any fireworks, and I was thinking, you know, I can't do the cannon thing. That's not going to work. Eleanor's going to go run and hide under a car. That just can't happen. And so I bought snaps, right? You remember the little snaps? You throw them down on the ground, and they go pop, right? And Addie Wynn loved them. She was just ecstatic, throwing them down at my feet, trying to throw them at me. It was crazy. And then the, the, the neighbors, they shot the little cannons. And the cannon compared to the snap is just boom. Like it's just shocking, right? And then we went home. And from where I live, through my backyard, you can see the Daphne fireworks show. And the Daphne fireworks show are real cannons. And they rattle your windows. They're not snaps. And then you know the extravaganza, the, the end, the, the, fu- the finale. That rattles your whole home. And every dog in the neighborhood starts to bark. What you and I understand of this text, what you and I experience on a daily reality is a snap. Compared to the finale. And we won't even get the full finale until revelation, until Jesus returns. And what do we get when Jesus returns? We get God face to face. We get him fully. And we get that with the full tribes and tongues and nations that are seen here. We get the full promise as a result of the work of Christ. This is what just absolutely flabbergasted. I've never used that word in actually a sermon. Flabbergasted. Paul. Paul is so beside himself in Colossians and in Ephesians 1. In Colossians, he goes on and on. All chapter 1, the power and the preeminence of Jesus. And then he says twice in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all of the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. In Colossians, 
chapter 1, verse 19, all of God dwells in Jesus. And then Colossians 2, 19, 2, 9, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. There's no limits to how much of God is in Jesus. There's no limits to, to Jesus being God. There, is no, there are no limits, and all of God dwells in Jesus. And then what does he say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that's so mind-blowing? And you've been filled in him. He dwells in Jesus, and Jesus dwells in you. You have all of God residing with you, the full presence and power of God, the full presence and power of Jesus. And if you go back and you look in, in, in Luke, and I'm sorry, in John, Jesus, John chapter 3, verse 34, John says, Jesus is full of the Spirit without measure. Without measure. Love that phrase. There is no tape measure, no ruler. You, can, you cannot account for how much of the Spirit is in Jesus. And Jesus resides in us. That means all of God the Father, all of God the Son, all of God the Spirit resides in you and I if we are followers of Christ. He literally, Paul is beside himself in Ephesians chapter 1 about what this means. This union. He goes on and on. He, he just he, he goes on. It's one, run on, one long run-on sentence in chapter 1. He just can't stop, and he finally gets to like verse 17, 18, 19. He just says, God, just give them a glimpse, a glimmer, an inkling, a thimble's for, full worth of understanding of this reality. A snap. If we could just get a snap understanding, our minds would be blown. The way we live would be different. And he goes on, he says, we've been filled with the full glory of the God of the universe. We've been filled with the full power of the maker of heaven and earth. We've been filled with the presence of the great I am. We've been filled with the full security and the full assurance of the king of kings. His strength is ours. His protection is ours. Why on earth? This is an inkling of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Why on earth would I ever be afraid if he resides within me, if he goes before me and comes behind me, if his arms are around me, that's the beginning inklings of transformative, the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Joy is another one. Why on earth would I ever be, be sad and devastated? Certainly we have human emotions, not discounting those things, but ultimately they are overtaken by hope and joy because God lives within me and is for me. And not against me. We've been filled with every spiritual blessing, Paul says. The full reward of heaven in Jesus is ours. We've been filled with the full help and the full comfort of the Holy Spirit. He is called the helper and the comforter. When we don't know what to do, he's there. When we don't know what to pray, he prays. When we don't know which way is up, he wraps his arms around. That if we would just preach a snap's worth of this to ourselves every day, if we would just preach a snap worth of this in those moments of despair, in those moments of frustration and of impatience and of, of ingratitude and, and, and not being gracious, if we would just preach it, this is what Paul, you say, what does all this have to do with my everyday reality? Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul takes and he looks at what Christians, Christians, why are you taking each other to court? 
do you not know? You are the temple of the Most High God? Christians, why are you living that way sexually with your eyes or with your hands or with your actions? This Christian sex ethic. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? The God of the universe resides in you. It changes how you live practically every single day. And no one's perfect at it because we're not, we're on this side of heaven. But this side of heaven, this is what we're given. This is the power and the strength and the hope and the joy. We can't live the gospel transformed life apart from this gift. We cannot do it. We don't know who we fully are without the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit, one of his primary roles. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a child. This is what he preaches to us. This is what he's calling to us. And that's why Paul says, listen to him. Heed him. Keep in step with him. We don't know how to fight sin. We don't know how to resist sin. Paul says, you do it not by the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit who resides within you. So keep in step with him. We don't know where to go, which way is up, how to respond apart from the work of the Holy Spirit guiding and teaching and nudging and leading us. We don't have the full confidence of the future to come without the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is our seal, is our guarantee, is our down payment, is the down payment of the promise of what's to come. That one day every tribe and tongue and nation will stand around the throne and God will dwell with man and man with God. The Holy Spirit is the promise of that, the seal of that, the guarantee of that. We don't have the power, the words, or the motivation to fulfill Jesus' commands, Jesus' assignment to us to proclaim the gospel to the nations. We don't have the power, the words, or the motivation to do that apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what we'll see in the book of Acts. And that's what we see immediately, and it's how our text ends in verse 4, and it's how it goes on in verse 5 to 13. It's where we're going to end today, and we'll pick up next week. On Sinai, God spoke through the thunder, and everyone heard his voice. There was no misunderstanding. Now, on Pentecost, God speaks, but he speaks through his disciples. The good news of the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, the hope of the nations. And there's no misunderstanding. Everyone hears it in their own language. On this day, what happens? They, on this day when they celebrated the harvest, when they celebrated the, the first inklings, the first fruits of what's to come, when they got a foretaste of what's to come, what happens in this moment? At the end of all of this, 3,000 people are added to their number that day. They get a harvest of souls and a foretaste of the kingdom to come. This is extraordinary. This is a watershed moment in salvation history. This is now the promise for you and I every day if we are in Christ Jesus. This is the power. This is the strength. This is the patience that you long for and hope for. It's in the Holy Spirit, the power that he gives. It's in the presence of God dwelling in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwelling in Jesus, dwelling in you and I. This is what's offered. Real substance, real hope, real meaning, real identity in Christ. God dwelling with man and man dwelling with God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, what we have realized in this text, what you have shown us in this text, is is mind-blowing, earth-shattering. What we experience on a daily, regular basis of who you are is simply so minuscule, so small. It's not because you are small. It's because we're so satisfied with so many other worthless things, and I'm chief among those that do that. I'm so satisfied with a little snap when the finale of the fireworks show is offered. I'm so satisfied with mud pies in the slums when a weekend at the beach is offered. I'm so satisfied with Turkish delight when a feast in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever before the throne of God, surrounded by the tribes and tongues and nations of the world, is offered to me. Holy Spirit, take your word. You're the teacher of your word. Drive it deep, deep, deep within. Break our hearts. Convict us of sin. Convict us of the only hope of where righteousness is found. And convict us of the judgment to come if we are not in Christ Jesus. Lord, if there's someone in this room and they've been playing the religious game, they've been playing the morality game, they've been been trying to climb up to you, may that be shattered. May their legs be cut out from under in this morning, and may they see the only hope. It's a God, the God of the universe, the creator and maker of heaven and earth, has come near. Come near in Jesus. Come even more intimately in the Holy Spirit. And may they yield. May they surrender and hope in you. May the power that's promised in this text be the power we live by in our everyday lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.